You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. I am pleased to introduce our speaker today, Mary Baker. You have the bio either online to our friends out there in uh, the ether or here in person. But let me just point out a couple of things. She's the CEO of Play First right now, which she joined recently. Uh, the last time I had a chance to see Mary and actually see her talk, and it was just fantastic, she was the founding CEO of Navigenics, which is in that same category of uh, personalized uh, you know, uh, medicine and so on with uh, 23Me. And I hope we hear a little bit about that today as well as uh, about Play First. Uh, before that, she was in the health uh, care field as well with Baby Center, um, as you can see. And then before that, at that great uh, consumer uh, company, a technology company, uh, into it. I think the connection here, and what I'm particularly pleased to uh, point out, is that she uh, served as a member of the Board of Trustees uh, for this university for seven years. And that is the overall governing body. That, that's who President uh, Hennessy reports to <laughs> for the university. And I had a chance to be a faculty rep on that for a, a little while recently, uh, for a couple of years. And I just saw how much time uh, trustees you know, give to uh, the university on, frankly, a volunteer basis. So I uh, really appreciate her service to the university that way. But the coolest thing is, um, and her real connection, her first connection was to Stanford, was she was an econ and sociology major here. So, um, you know, hooray for humanities and uh, sciences. So let's welcome Mary back to campus. Well, thank you all. Thank you, Tom. Uh, it's great to be here. Great to be back on campus. Good to see all of you. Um, I'm going to try to you know, go through, give a little bit of a background, talk about uh, some of the experience that I've had, and hopefully be successful at weaving a few lessons and learnings along the way that um, you know, I hope you'll find to be valuable, and then, of course, have time at the end to answer some questions. Of course, today is tax day, which if I had still at my old job at Intuit, you wouldn't see me, and you wouldn't have seen me for a long time leading up to this, but... Uh, uh, thanks to TurboTax being here, I was able to get my taxes done early. So, uh, okay, so came to Stanford. How, how does a sociology major get started in the technology industry? That's a good question. Um, you know, when I came here, this was back in the BC times, sort of before computers were uh, popular around campus. And um, the first time I'd ever seen a computer was in my freshman dorm. Uh, one of the guys had a uh, Exidy 64 cassette tra tape drive computer. You stick a little cassette tape in the computer and you have a little green screen with black, uh, black type. And I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. Um, and so my first, uh, actually my first start with entrepreneurial ventures was while I was a student. Um, I had the opportunity to work for a small software company that was doing the very first uh, home finance package on the Apple II, and I got involved in computers from that point in time and realized that uh, they were great because you could make them do pretty much whatever you wanted them to do, and that was a great way to solve consumer problems. Um, what I want to do is talk about some of the things um, in learning along the way, and I'd say 
one starting point that I've learned is the notion of sort of going through the open door. When opportunities present themselves, take advantage of them. And for me, that started with uh, getting exposed to computers while a student, taking an extra job. And when I graduated, of course, as an econ sociology major, one gets to that point and says, huh, what am I going to do out there in the world? And the first uh, job that I had out of school was actually working for a local stockbroker who had been at E.F. Hutton in Palo Alto Square and had taught a class my senior year on investing. And uh, so you know, he offered me an internship out of college for $100 a month, was uh, you know, my great, after spending four years at Stanford, uh, first job opportunity. But what was great um, about that was getting to work for somebody, and you wouldn't necessarily expect this out of an E.F. Hutton, out of a local office, out of a stockbroker, but who gave me the opportunity to try new things, who supported me as a recent graduate in learning and growing and developing. So one of the, after uh, being there for a little bit, one of the first uh, sort of entrepreneurial ventures, uh, so to speak, that I convinced this group to do, again, this is in the days of typesetting and timesharing on minis and mainframes, was bring a Macintosh and PC and laser printer in through the back door and convert everything we were doing um, to type to uh, desktop publishing and custom databases and stuff that we built ourselves and moving it that way. And I think that what was great about that opportunity was we dramatically improved the productivity of what we did. We taught, you know, again, this is like the first time nobody was using computers uh, within these office environments, uh, personal computers, showed what they could do. And for me, as a young uh, person just out of college, was the beginning of getting that confidence of knowing if I can put myself out there, if I can work hard enough to gain the confidence of my boss and her boss, then I can keep learning and keep growing and doing new things that can you know, continue to keep um, my career, my job interesting, and start to make a real difference. So I think that that's you know, one of the things I would um, uh, in, encourage you to do is to um, take advantage of those opportunities, make the most of the opportunities uh, that you have, and be being when you have uh, a boss or a, a work environment where you can really learn to take advantage of that. I went to Intuit uh, early on, again in the notion of I it was looking. I had two offers, one from Intuit, and one from another company, um, where they were much. I had a much much more financially attractive offer. Much better company, bigger company, you know, looked like it was going to be around for a while, but made the decision to go to Intuit. There were about 30 people at Intuit at that time. Uh, nobody had heard of the company. Nobody had really heard of Quicken or Intuit, um, but made the decision to go there because of the people, because of by the time you got done interviewing with all the people, the senior leadership, having confidence that these guys had seen enough things, had enough experience, that I could really learn from them. 
and um, that was absolutely the wrong financial decision to have to have made in the short term, but the absolute right decision to have made over the long run of being involved with people and who were very thoughtful, very methodical, and um, you know, again, creating opportunities to learn and grow in responsibility. So into it. So how does how do you, um, um, you know, lessons, you know, learned along the way. So one of the great things are Intuit in the early days. So, you know, 30 people were there. Nobody had heard of the company. But what the company had, which I think is, again, one, if you're going to go out there and start a new business, I think a core fundamental um, proposition is the relentless focus on wowing the customer, Right. You know, successful products are those which solve a consumer's problem and do it to the point where they're not just happy, right, but they're wowed, that they're so excited. If they're just happy, they're unlikely to go tell their friends about it. But if you wow them, if they're so excited by that experience that they'll go and tell their friends, that allows you to really build an organization. I remember when I started, one of the first days, First questions I asked Scott Cook was, well, how are we going to succeed in this business? We only have three salespeople. How are we going to be successful against all these other companies? And he said, well, actually, you know, we have a million salespeople. You know, because our goal is we can is to make those customers so excited they'll go out and tell their friends. And so the relentless focus back then was truly understanding what was the customer need. And the insight was Okay, let's, let's try an experiment. How many people out in this audience love paying bills? Okay, nobody. How many people love doing their taxes? Nobody. So the key was always how do you make doing that task faster and easier so that um, you can get it done faster and get on with your life? And Intuit was, or Quicken, was not the first product in the marketplace. We were not the biggest company. Um, we did not have the most resources. But it was a fundamental understanding from the consumer that I really hate doing this. <laughs> Make it fast and easy. So the, you know, when you're starting out in a company, the easiest thing to do is to listen to all the feedback and try to implement it all. Oh, they want this, 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 and this. I'm going to just do it. Um, while that might sound hard, that's actually the easy thing. <laughs> the hard thing is to take all the feedback and stay really focused, to stay relentlessly focused on the, cust- the driving customer need and what you can do to solve that need. So while our competitors were adding more and more functionality into the product, Quicken stayed narrow and focused on making it faster. Same insight in QuickBooks of when you're starting a small business, people go in to start a small business because they love running a restaurant, they love uh, clothing, they like running a a shop, they don't do it. But what happens as the business grows is the whole deal of managing your finances takes over and becomes a bigger and bigger piece of it. So again, keeping that fast and simple. Um, And... As Intuit, um, as Intuit grew, the other piece that I want to encourage all of you to think about, especially if you're going to go out and start a company or get involved in a company early on, is coming back to that focus on setting a culture. 
setting a culture um, in the company, what you want it to be. And, and the reason when it's small, when there's you and three of your friends in a room, well, you chose, you chose your, they're your friends, so you're doing this together. There's sort of a self-defining culture. But as a company starts to get bigger, you need to be very clear about what it is that you want the company to stand for and how it's going to make decisions and you know, what your philosophies are. And so it's, um, it's, you know, at Intuit, we, you know, we actually shut down the whole company for two days, took everybody off-site, worked on vision, mission, values, and it was a defining moment in the company's history uh, that allowed it, you know, to grow and continue um, to move forward. And it's, you know... Um, this last week, I had the opportunity to have lunch with a, a, a founder of a very, what's right now a very hot company, small company still, but I think will be in the news a lot over the next 12 months uh, in the Valley. And, you know, these were questions that as the company had very quickly gone from 10 people to 50 people to 100 people in a matter of uh, just a few months, they're starting to see the company burst at the seams because of a lack of really understanding those things. And it's really important because how do you know when you hire somebody in, are they going to be consistent with what you believe in, with how you want to create and grow your company? And it's an important, it's an important piece to make sure uh, is paid attention to early on and that you focus on, on doing. So on from Intuit, which, um, which was also a great, you know, the, the piece about wowing customers is we would literally get letters. Of course, email wasn't popular quite yet back then. We would literally get letters from customers saying, um, thank you for giving us Quicken. It enabled me to save money to send my kid to college. You know, thank you for Quicken. It gave me the tools to save money to buy a house. You know, thank you for Quicken. It saved my marriage. Um, the, um, and you can see the value, you know, the, the value that you're really doing um, out there in the world with the products and services that you provide. And I had the uh, opportunity coming out, of, um, coming out of Intuit, and that's actually a good story as well, because at some point... You'll go get a job, and you'll be doing things, and you'll need to leave. You'll need to change jobs. How do you change a job successfully? Um, so for me, leaving uh, Intuit, I sat down with Bill Campbell, who was CEO of the company then, and we talked through the whole thing. We talked through what I was looking at, why I thought it would be a good opportunity, is now the right time, and made that a very conscious discussion. And that's something I always encourage the people that uh, work for me to do is there's obviously going to be a time when you work someplace that it is time to go and do something different. And it's important to, be, to have that be a constructive conversation so things can be managed uh, accordingly. But had the opportunity to go from Intuit uh, to Baby Center. Baby Center was one of the, um, well, is certainly today the worldwide, uh, leading worldwide resource for new and expectant parents. Uh, Baby Center is online content, community, and commerce for largely starting in pregnancy and moving through in the first early years of a child's life. And the, the, the key fundamental insight with Baby Center is mass personalization. That 
by understanding a simple piece of information, which is a baby's due date, you can create a highly personalized experience that can feed you know, to somebody who's seven weeks pregnant versus you know, four months pregnant versus has a two-month-old baby, a customized experience with exactly what's relevant to that person at that time. Um, baby Center uh, grew. Uh, when I left a, a few years ago, we had two-thirds of all pregnant women in the United States on Baby Center, about two-thirds of all women in the UK. And before I left, we were able to expand um, the service to China and India and throughout Europe. After Johnson & Johnson purchased the company, uh, we were able to leverage their infrastructure to continue to expand broadly. And again, I think when you look at uh, a company like Baby Center, so fundamental insight being when people are pregnant, they have a high need for information. They vor- have a voracious appetite for information, but people are also busy and so how can, you be, how can you provide people information? How can you leverage uh, technology? And in fact, you know, right, when in those early days, people said, oh, you'll never succeed. Books are good enough, right? Why do I need to get this information online? There's plenty of good books. Doctors' offices have plenty of free information. There's lots of resources. Um, why do I need to go online? But yet... Um, you know, millions of women every month, every day would come to the website. And it's because of the benefit of technology to being able to be applied to serve information as you need it, the relevant information to connect in a community experience um, and to have access to people who are like you and sharing through the same experience. Um, the interesting piece, I think one of the interesting things to think about um, in Baby Center is you would wonder about a, a San Francisco-based, you know, web, you know, 1.0, 2.0-ish kind of company getting bought by a company like Johnson & Johnson, right? Is that, is that something that's going to fit? Does that make a lot of sense? Um, and what I'll share with you is that it was a great uh, merger. Um, Johnson & Johnson, and this is, you know, is a company with deep values and integrity and purpose and mission um, that aligned very well with what Baby Center was doing. So that although, although the business was different, the fundamental business dynamics were different, the values of the organization were consistent so that decisions could be made because they were made from a point of having a common value system. And when you start with that, it's actually it's actually a lot easier to make those decisions than if those values are not aligned um, from the beginning. Um, And then uh, uh, on to Navigenics. So let's talk a little bit about uh, Navigenics. Um, Navigenics is a leading company in the new space of um, personalized medicine, uh, writ large, DNA testing. The idea is that by sending us a sample of your saliva. We can tell you a broad range of health conditions that you're genetically predisposed for and what you can do to mitigate the, uh, any adverse health um, issues that might come up. So the whole idea is preventive health care. So um, Navigenics, it's, it's, um, and, and Tom mentioned 23andMe, which uh, is certainly the other you know, leading company in the space. I think they're the two companies who get the most, um, uh, most awareness in the space and certainly uh, the most 
well-funded and backed and supported. So as you're, so 23andMe, you know, so you're sitting there, you're building a company in a whole new industry, and you know a competitive company exists, right? You know this company exists. You don't know exactly what's going to happen. And you got to build your business in the same time. So the strategy um, that we took with Navigenics was, all right, this is very, very early in this industry. We believe it's where things are going to go, right? I mean, healthcare has got to be more personalized. We can't keep treating people on the basis of, you know, you're a 40-year-old woman, therefore these things are the things we're going to check for, right? We're, we're different. We're, you know... You know, there are different things in our backgrounds and our history and what we're doing. Medicine has to get more personalized in order to bring the cost down over the long run. We also have to get more preventive focus, especially in this country, right? We can't just wait and let things develop. We have to take control earlier on. So absolutely convinced where it's going to go in the long run, but how do you get a market started? How do you start from scratch? Um, and so the strategy we took with Navigenics was one that said, look, um, while we don't know how fast the healthcare establishment is going to adopt it, you have to maintain credibility. You have to be viewed. There, there is definitely a conversation between a consumer and a doctor it's, you know, in, when you're talking about healthcare. So you have to maintain that credibility with the medical establishment. But we were concerned that doctors were not going to adopt it fast enough for us to build a business. So we wanted to go direct to consumers to have them, um, to, to enable them to purchase it, uh, purchase our services. So, you know, our positioning ended up being, so what we did is we took a look at it and said, look, um, we are going to um, position what we are doing as being the credible science, credible medicine, um, but yet being consumer friendly. So as the market develops, we could decide which end of the spectrum, if it's pure consumer or if it's pure medical, we could move to, to give ourselves the most opportunity. And what we learned as we went into the marketplace, we learned a few things. One is our competitor took a spot clearly in the consumer realm. And so that's, you know, if, you've, if you viewed it as a spectrum, that, viewed the, you know, that put them in one spot and gave us the whole rest of the market opportunity to take advantage of. And so as we started to, to uh, come to market and learn and watch, which is a thing you'll have to do if you're going to go out and start a company or be part of a startup, is you, know, you have your best ideas and best research going into it, but you've got to learn and watch. You've got to watch what the market's telling you. you know, actually, being in the market is the best research you can do and the best research you can have. And so what we, um, what we learned was that uh, actually doctors were much more uh, ready and willing to accept the notion of genetics, much more willing to get on the back of preventive health care, much more ready to engage in, in discussions with their patients about how to improve health care over the long run than we had given them credit for early on. And so in, you know, in about six months, within six months after the, the launch of the product, we had enough evidence um, that that's where the market was going, both in um, programs we're able to establish with people like Mayo Clinic and the Cleveland Clinic and um, individual doctors signing up to, to offer our service to their patients, that we decided to take a whole right turn and move further down that spectrum 
and um, really go after the whole physician side of the business, which I do fundamentally believe is how if we're a, once that side of the business is willing to adopt it, it's going to enable us to uh, enable Navigenics to be a much more of a standard practice of medicine component of healthcare than trying to go up against it from the outside. And so this is another um, thing to think about too when you're running a company. So you're let's say you're uh, an entrepreneurial founder of a company, you're a CEO. And you, of course, have a significant uh, interest in the company's success. And all of a sudden, you've realized that you've decided to take the company in this direction that your background and skill set is actually not suited for. Um, so uh, you know, what do you do in that situation? And so for me, I have a great board, which is one of the things that you're going to want to also pay attention to is really... Um, how do you construct your board? How do you work with your board? How do you um, take advantage of all the skill sets that they have to bring to the table? And we sat down and we said, you know, the company, this is clearly where the market opportunity is. And, you know, what do, you know, can we bring in somebody who really has a skill set, who's built physician sales channels, who understands that environment to grow the company forward? And so, in fact, the company recently announced um, a new CEO who, in fact, comes with that skill set and will be the right person to move that company forward. And I say that as a story of, um, I mean, Navigenics, the opportunity, I mean, just in the short period of time, helping people find, I mean, we have plenty of examples now within less than a year on the market of finding the people with high genetic risk for cancer helping them get an early screen, finding early stages of cancer, and addressing it early on. And if you, you listen to the president of the American Cancer Society, he'll say that right now the best cure we may have for cancer, you know, after billions of dollars of research, is early detection. And that's the benefit of something like what Navigenics can do, is enabling, giving the clue about who we should start screening early for. And that's a powerful thing. I think when you start a company or you're involved in an early startup, the reality is, right, most don't make it over the long run, right? Most startups don't succeed. Um, That's the risk inherent in doing a startup. It's a risk inherent in being an entrepreneur. And so um, I encourage you to find things where, A, you're going to learn, people you're going to learn from, and products and services that you can feel passionate about, things that you can understand, you can make the tie back to how they make people's lives better. So for me, in making the transition to play first, the interesting... um, so he's asking, you know, how did you decide to make a transition to play first? I hadn't gone out to look at gaming as a place to go, but... um, uh, you know, I hadn't targeted that specifically and wasn't sure initially that that was going to be the right place for me coming out of like doing DNA testing, personalized medicine into gaming. Um, but the, um, over Christmas, I brought home a stack of Play First games and sat down with my kids. I have three girls and we were playing these games. And one of Play First games is um, a game called Wedding Dash. And my 10-year-old was playing this game, and after a couple of days, she had reached the highest level and, you know, of gameplay. And I said, okay, well, 
What did you learn? Let's say you're going to go out and, and uh, set up a wedding catering business. What did you learn about how to be successful in business? When she's 10, right? So she comes back and she says, well, I learned that if you make your customers happy, you can get more money. And if you get more money, you can invest it in your business. And then you just keep making your customers happy and your business can grow. And I kind of sat back and I said, well, gosh, there's an awful lot of CEOs I know who haven't figured that part out. And if by playing a game, you can help people. And one of the things to recognize is um, casual gaming is largely an audience of women 35 and older are typical casual gamers. And um, one of the other things that's interesting is actually most small businesses are started by women. And the general view, you know, the general flow of that is women step out of the workforce, oftentimes when they have kids, find it hard to get back in the workforce or start their own businesses. And if those women are playing Diner Dash and Wedding Dash and the other Play First products, and they can, by virtue of doing that, learn some fundamental things, feel empowered and confident to go start their business, that's a great thing. And so for, for me, the, the hook into a company like Play First is the the role that I fundamentally believe the company, through games, can play in perhaps an educational piece there. Secondly is the role, why do women 35 and older play these casual games? You talk to any um, demographic market researcher, and they say, well, this is the demographic that is the most time-stressed demographic of all. So the role of casual games in, in, in their life is to provide the little stress reliever that little break during the day. And through the work that I did at Baby Center, and, and this was something that I started at Intuit, um, we do, I think they call it these days ethnographic research. We called it follow me home testing. You know, we'd go into the homes of the consumers or our target market and just try to understand their lives. And you go into a home of a Baby Center customer, of a stay-at-home mom, and you get a picture of a life that's very hectic, very stressed, um, and not always full of positive feedback. And the role that casual games can play is giving a break so she can get back on track for getting through the rest of the day and the rest of her responsibilities. And one of the hallmarks of casual games is lots of positive feedback. So you can feel a sense of accomplishment and achievement uh, in what you're doing. And I think those are great roles to play in somebody's day. In, in each day, if... If every day, play first, can put a little bit of joy and delight in someone's life, I think that's a pretty cool thing. And so um, I think there's a lot of other things that are interesting and very appealing about play first. But for me, again, I'll say what I've learned over time is you don't know for sure if what you're going to work on is going to be successful. That's the thing that's, in my opinion, fun <laughs> about being involved in startups uh, is that opportunity to learn and grow and figure it out. But, you know, if you're going to work on that, if you're going to spend a lot of time and energy doing it, uh, it's, it's great to do it on something you feel passionate about and you think can make a difference in the world. Um, so I encourage you to find those opportunities. So I think um, if I were to add a couple more thoughts on uh, coming on board at Play First. So this is day 23 for me at Play First, so uh, it's still pretty new. And one of the things that um, 
you know, that have tried to do, again, this is a company, so the company's five years old. It's about 100 people in the company, um, you know, games of, you know, millions of people using our games, is um, really trying to, you know, we've, we've sat down tomorrow, we have a company meeting. We've made drafts of mission and values, try to be clear about a corporate culture, try to be clear about objectives, goals, and strategies, and aligning organizations to work in the same direction. Um, we, something, um, we, we've had the entire executive team read Good to Great, a book that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Um, you know, the importance of the, the core um, tenants in that book, I think, are great lessons for uh, running a company. And I think it's still one of the best management books there. And, I, and, and the... The, one of the key things, I think, in a company or as CEO is to be very purposeful, to co- be conscious of, um, of what you do and how you do it. Uh, to be, and, and even you know, as, a, as a co-founder, as a leader in an organization, you know, there's interesting, you know, some organizations that I've seen, you know, the, so there's the company-wide email, right? The company-wide emails that go out. Some organizations that I've seen send out the company-wide email, um, you know, uh, recognizing people who stayed in and worked all weekend, you know, recognizing the people who were there all night long to get something done. And there's nothing wrong with that. But to be conscious of the message that sends, that sends the message of that's what we expect. That's what we want to have happen. I've been at companies where the company-wide emails that go out are the ones around congratulating somebody for negotiating the heck out of a service contract so we got the best pricing possible, congratulating somebody for doing something you know, the cheapest way possible. And that really breeds a culture of people being really conscious about spending, being really conscious about value, being really conscious about how they're using the company's money. And that's okay, too. Um, you know, there's... Another company that I've been at where all the emails that go out are about congratulating around product launches. You know, product launches, all about the product. And that's great, too. There's nothing wrong with that. But the thing that I want to you know, ask you to think about when you get into those roles is being conscious. What, is, what do you want to be valued in the company? Because what you do, what those company emails are, set the tone for the whole company. And you want to be conscious about those things. You want to be conscious about those messages that you're delivering because those are the cues that the team will take to know what it takes to be successful in the organization and you know, where that focus is going to be. So I think, um, uh, I think that I uh, want to uh, end with a few notes about... Um, about, you know, in, in building a company, uh, the, just to summarize, I think the key pieces would be focusing on wowing your customers, um, just making just that relentless focus and understanding their needs. Go into their homes. Don't leave it to the marketing guys. You know, get the engineers out into their homes. Get it, people who are building the products and services. Get everybody in the company to really understand um, who the customer is and what those needs are. And how technology can solve those needs. I think the best breakthroughs I've ever seen be made is when we got engineers in the home of a customer, engineers working directly with a customer, 
um, to really understand those needs and come up with great solutions uh, um, using technology. I encourage you to focus. It's really easy to do a lot of things. It's really hard to do a few things. Um, focus. Uh, uh, it's, um, you know, I remember early on at Intuit, um, early on, uh, this, uh, one of the other guys and I had made a recommendation to Scott Cook, we should get in the tax business. We should go buy this TurboTax company. This would be great. We should do it. Scott said, no, <laughs> we're not going to go do it. We're going to focus on building Quicken. And um, a few years later, we went and bought TurboTax. Uh, now, was I right because we eventually did it? Well, I was right. It was a good idea, but I think Scott was right to wait. Because if we had, at that point in time, it's not clear the company could have really absorbed it. You know, was quick and strong enough? Did we have a strong enough management team? Did we have the internal capabilities and scalable processes and systems to bring something like that on board? Probably not. And we paid a lot more money later on, but it was the right thing to wait. We waited to go to international. You know, we waited to do these things. You know, at Baby Center, you know, we went internationally because we had Johnson & Johnson to work on their back to, to go and do that. We debated all these things much earlier in the company's history. But you, if you overextend yourself too much early on, there's a balance of you have to try some things, but you do too many things, it's hard to do anything well. And lastly, I just want to reiterate, um, build the culture. Be conscious of what kind of a company you want and what kind of a culture you want. That, will feed, that feeds into who you hire, um, and, you know, and that's going to feed into the company that you've got. Okay. Do we have any questions out there? Yeah. Yes. Um, I know the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act was passed recently. Yep. While you were leading, um, how did you protect your patients from health insurance issues and um, genetic counseling just if they got information that was really hard to get? Yeah. So the question was, um, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act was signed, I think, a little over a year ago by President Bush and went into effect um, earlier this year. What that does is to, it's another area of protection from discrimination, in this case from genetics, in terms of employment uh, and insurance. And so the question was about, um, you know, how do we at Navigenics uh, protect people from that information? The um, and in genetic counseling. So there's still, you know, the reality is that there are still gaps to fill. There are still gaps in um, making sure people are protected from uh, genetic discrimination. Um, but the reality, when you look at the, the state, the, the legal history and filings, there haven't been um, a lot, there's not a strong legal basis for where those issues have come up. So there's not a, in reality, there are not a lot of situations where those discrimination issues have evolved. Um, Gina makes a really good step in plugging some of the holes. There are a lot of steps underway by some of the um, legislators who push for Gina in the first place to come back and fill in those pieces that are left. And it has to get put into place for personalized medicine to be successful in the long run. Um, and so there are a lot of movements to make that happen. It's one of the reasons that um, Navigenics 
started out in going direct to consumers was that you have the information, you can choose whether to share it you know, with other people or not, and therefore protect your privacy to the extent pa- possible. But with Gina passing, it does give enough more protection. Navigenic strategy in the marketplace, again, part of our effort to to help consumers is we're the, we're the company who has genetic counselors available. The interesting thing that's really evolved a lot with genetic counselors, again, as doctors have been more interested in this, our genetic counselors tend to spend a lot of their time educating the physicians, which, again, is the right scalable, sustainable thing to have happen in the marketplace. Uh, a lot of physicians um, didn't get a lot of training on genetics when they went through medical school 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, and so... There's a big role and a gap right now that's been identified in really how do we make sure in medical school training that we get more uh, genetics training? How do, we, how do we deal with the people who've graduated in the last 20 years and reinforcing that? And so while the, our genetic counseling is certainly available to all of, our, all of our consumers, the interesting thing, again, is you watch a business after you launch it is the amount of, of the time and effort is, is now that doctors are bringing to their practice, we can really work in educating the physicians. And that's... That, in the end, is the great solution. If you're talking about your results with your physician, then that helps to mitigate some of the concerns you know, that come across and all can be put in perspective. Uh, what do you want to see on PlayFirst's company-wide emails? What, what do I want to see on PlayFirst's company-wide emails? Um, I think that it's a dedication to excellence. Um, that, And I think that... Part of it for me is I want everybody in the company to feel that they have a role in achieving the company's goals. So if you segment it and you only talk about the product people, how do the guys in finance or how, the guy, you know, how, does, how does the whole rest of the company feel that alignment? And so what I want to look for are stories that celebrate excellence, stories that celebrate people going that one step farther either you know, through innovation, creativity, perseverance. Um, that, and so that allows me to take it in whatever functional area you might be um, and highlight those sort of stories. Because what I want people to do is always go that step farther. It's been said that nearly every startup has a near-death experience at some point. Um, I'm curious, uh, you've been in a number of startups. What have been your experiences with uh, interfacing with VCs and uh, funding, any funding issues you might have had? So the question was, um, most every startup has a near-death experience. Uh, what's my, uh, what have I seen of that? And specifically also, what have I seen from, from VCs and, and working the, well, on the fundraising side? So while, um, uh, so while Intuit and Baby Center so have both been good successes, I, um, and I have every confidence in Avogenics and Play First will as well, I've also uh, either invested personally or been on the board of or had some time working at some other smaller startups that haven't made it, that have gone through that death experience and, in fact, died. Um, <laughs> And the, what, what are some of the commonalities? I think that, um, you know, the, you know, staying focused, hiring great people, and, you know, getting committed investors is, uh, is an important piece um, in, the, in the whole overall piece of being, being successful. Uh, you know, Intuit was an interesting story where Intuit could not attract venture capital investment in the early days. You know, Scott Cook was a Crisco brand manager 
and his you know, co-founder was had just graduated from Stanford. You know, not a very fundable proposition for doing consumer finance software besides the market was already crowded, so how the heck are you going to win? Um, and in two, it was a classic story of being self-funded friends and family uh, for a long time, which created, an, again, created an initial culture of austerity. Um, and, uh, you know, and that pervaded so the company got to be profitable as quickly as it could. And, um, and eventually did get VC money at a point much later on when it was you know, viewed as being really uh, important to help position the company for, for future uh, growth phases. Um, Baby Center uh, went through a um, near-death experience in... Um, the company had first been purchased by eToys. People may remember eToys uh, during the whole uh, dot-com boom of years ago. And so eToys uh, purchased uh, Baby Center uh, for all stock. And at eToys IPO, um, uh, they were worth a billion dollars on the day of their IPO in, must have been April or May, maybe May or June of 1999. Um, and let's see, uh, somewhere around, uh, you know, a year, a year and a half later, we're in the process of filing for bankruptcy. Uh, and so one of the things, of course, to remember when you're engaged in a startup is sometimes, and you will learn this with your stock options, sometimes they can go to zero. <laughs> um, and so, you know, Baby Center, so, you know, my, um, you know as eToys was uh, looking for its strategic alternatives, uh, I had a hard time seeing who was going to value Baby Center, who you know, who is going to really value what Baby Center brings to the table versus eToys and that proposition? And as CEO of Baby Center, I felt like my responsibilities to the Baby Center employees, to the Baby Center customers, certainly, and to help uh, the eToys team. So while I was supporting them in shopping eToys, I also went out and separately shopped Baby Center. And, you know, we were uh, apparently the fastest acquisition ever uh, in J&J history, I give J&J a ton of credit for moving very quickly. They agreed with me on the importance of acquiring Baby Center before eToys went into uh, Chapter 11 so that uh, we could preserve um, Baby Center and its assets uh, as best as possible. And so we came out of, uh, you know, we avoided, you know, Baby Center avoided the near-death experience from that standpoint by finding a great a great home. And Baby Center actually did have a number of offers on the table. And the interesting thing was, you know, J&J wasn't the highest priced offer, but from eToys' perspective, it was all cash. And from our perspective, um, they were a great, again, a great values um, fit for Baby Center. Um, let's see. So in my experience working with VCs, I think one of the greatest experiences that I've had as far as, you know, the lesson of take the door when it opens is... Um, uh, John Doerr had made me the offer to come and be an executive of, in residence at Kleiner Perkins uh, whenever I was ready to leave Baby Center. And I thought, okay, well, that's great. And then, you know, he kept saying, well, whenever you're ready, bring a place. And, uh, and so I thought, okay, well, you know, I've never taken a little bit of time off. That might be a fun thing to go and do. So when I, uh, it allowed me to do a, a nice transition out of Baby Center to get the organization 
you know, in a good place. And then to go have the opportunity to sit inside Kleiner Perkins, which was great. Um, and have the opportunity to sit in on um, pitch meetings, get an opportunity to meet with a lot of companies in their portfolio. And I think the key for me in that experience was to really appreciate how hard that VC job is, <laughs> how really hard it is, the volume of great business plans that they see on a regular basis. And you know, any given partner gets to pick one for the year. Right? I mean, you, you might see 50 a week. You might, you know, plans. You might see in person 5, 10, you know, different companies, different great entrepreneurial teams pitching their, their idea. And you have to choose among all of this, you know, who you're going to marry for the next 10 years because you're going to be on their board for the next 10 years. Um, you're going to keep, you know, involved in that company for the next 10 years, and you get to make one of those choices a year. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's hard <laughs> to choose among all those great ideas. And so I think it was, it was also helpful for me from being on the other, you know, the normal role of being on the other side of the table to really also appreciate that to appreciate that, you know, just the quality and caliber of things they say they see, and to be much more thoughtful than if you're going to be going out and raising money, who has a thesis in the area where you're working on? You know, who is focused in that area? Who has a history in that area? Who believes in the area that you're working on? Um, because if it's not something that's on the radar, it's harder you know, to get in the mix. And I think that that was, that that was a, great, uh, a great experience. That, and, and you realize, you know, you're running, you're running your company and you're realizing that your VC partner, right, they've got to go back and, you know, they want to, they got to go back to their partners and also justify your next round of funding, right? They have, they're your partner. They, and they need to, they have accountability back to their partnership for how well you're doing and how well the investment they made in you is doing. So I think there really is an alignment of, of goals. Um, and I think, it's, it's, I think a lot of times you know, the entrepreneur needs to you know, really understand what that, that investor side, how they're accountable, how they're measured, so you can make that partnership work as best as you can. When we raised the uh, B round on Navigenics, we spent a lot of time thinking about who do we want to have come in as an investor? And we had Kleiner Perkins, and we had Sequoia already. And, you know, we were thinking about, well, who else could, you know, what other VC company could really, you know, did we think really understood personalized medicine well enough who we would be really bummed if they went out and funded somebody else. And uh, that was a big piece of what helped us target in on MDV, more Davidow, uh, as a potential investor. They were, of course, excited about it um, based on their experience in this space. And for me as a CEO, getting a great um, board member uh, who had prior experience in running a company, uh, who also um, uh, was a woman for me as a woman CEO. I, wa- I was very interested in another woman on the board. If we could find, you know, if we could find something that really fit, 
And so it was a great solution for me in getting, and you'll realize people say this. People say not everybody's money is the same. And you can get money from a lot of places. But you need to really think about that marriage (laughs) that you're doing to who you're getting that money from. Uh, And really trying to maximize for the benefit of the company, for the support of you as a CEO, who you decide to choose to let invest in your company. And I think that it's important to think about it that way around. It's not just going out with your hat. It's you're in charge. You're, you're the CEO. Who do you really want to get money from? Yeah. You mentioned uh, the idea of hiring the best people. Yeah. You also mentioned uh, building a culture um, or establishing a culture, I should say, choosing a culture. You also mentioned in passing the idea of building an organization. And I was just wondering how you, in your startups you've been part of, how do those three concepts work together? Yeah. I think, I think first of all, and uh, so the question was in hiring, how do the concepts of hiring great people, building a culture, and building an organization mesh together? I think, first of all, when you're hiring people, one of the things I've learned over time is there's a, di- there's a difference for me anyway in what I look for from individual contributors in an organization versus what I'm looking for in the leadership team and in a lot of the management positions. So I think one of the keys as you grow up in a leadership role in the company is emotional intelligence can um, start to trump intellectual intelligence as a barometer of success. Um, you know, as you play a higher and higher leadership role in a company, your ability to motivate people, your ability to work cross-functionally, your ability to get a team to follow you, even if they don't report to you, becomes more and more important, and you're working through others doing less yourself. As an individual contributor, you, you find the brightest, hardest-working people you can find, and you hope that you can really grow and develop those people over time and invest in them. Um, and I think that that's... In, in a, and for me, when I think about hiring... I also, in building an organization, and is, is I look for complementary skill sets. I always think, I always use the basketball team analogy of if they were all seven-foot centers, you can't win. If you're all six-foot guards, you can't win either. You've got to have, have complementary skill sets. You've got to have people who know how to work as a team and cover each other and support each other. And that, to me, gets back to that relationship to a culture. If you have a culture where people are pushing each other, supporting each other, um, and, you know, all in it together. I mean, again, it's like we're all here to make the company successful. (laughs) Um, You know, it doesn't doesn't work in an organization if one piece of the organization, you know, (laughs) does a great job and the other pieces fall apart, you're not going to be successful in the end. Um, And so, you know, I think that, bringing those different skill sets, getting them to work as a team is a core part of then building that culture and being conscious about it. I do think, you know, the other thing, and in, in, as I mentioned in passing, you know, I had the whole executive team read good to great. One of the things I've come to really appreciate over time is having a common lingo, having a common reference point, especially if you're building a company where you're hiring people. For, if, if you're bringing a whole management team with you somewhere and you've had a common past experience, then you've got that foundation. If, if you haven't, if you're pulling people together from different backgrounds, you need to create that common foundation. And something like uh, sharing a, a book, 
going to a training seminar, being very clear and explicit about each other's backgrounds and what, what those belief systems are can help create that common lingo uh, so that you can really talk and work together with a common foundation. Mary, thank you so much. Let me introduce the TAs as we do right. that. But let's give a round of applause. You have been listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.